You're listening to the Nerd to Know Media Network. Join us at nerdtoknowmedia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's now time for our main event. Take a trip back in time to the golden era of the wrestling world with your host, Chris Tetrold Blaine. Welcome to Once Upon a Turnbuckle. So welcome back to what is a really, really special episode of Once Upon a Turnbuckle. I know I've said that many times before, but this one, this is this is the finale for me. For I'm gonna, I'm actually giving myself sort of a good few weeks off over the summer to kind of recover. It's been a busy year, and I thought this was the most perfect way to to end it. Really, um, I've got a really special guest with me, but um, sort of just to give it a little bit of a taster. So. A lot of people who listen to this podcast will have heard me mention a certain guy um, multiple times throughout the course of the series who I grew up watching, who was one of my favorites. Now, you know, Bam Bam Bigelow is a name known worldwide. And it's not just in the wrestling community either. My dad, when I mentioned I was doing this episode, even my dad remembers Bam Bam Bigelow. And the only memories he's got is me pending his ear when I was about nine, 10 years old. Um, but he was, he's one of the superstars responsible for most of my own childhood memories, as well as millions of others. And he was a multi-time world champion, so pretty much wherever he went, known to millions around the world for his time in the w, WWF, WCW, ECW, Japan. And in mine, a lot more people's opinions, he is one of, if not the best big man in the sport, even now. And um, I'm honoured to have with me one of the people who probably knew him better than anyone else, um, his son, Shane Bigelow. Thank you so much for coming along. Thanks for having me. What a great intro. We don't even have to talk anymore. That you you said it all. <laughs> I know him really well. Grew up with him. Uh, yeah. He, no. <laughs> I, I did appreciate it. No, no worries. You know, I, 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 when I knew that this was going to be possible, I, I think I had so many questions I could ask um, because, you know, it's not often that you get to to talk to someone who knows one of your heroes on a certain level. And I think I've got too many questions. I'm probably not going to get around to asking them all. So I just really, this episode is really just to kind of talk about your dad, his career, what he was like outside the ring, anything really that you can remember that comes up along the way. Um, firstly, to kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, sort of, you know, what you do, what you're doing these days. And, you know, yeah, sort of plug yourself so, a little bit. 
I'm doing, I'm not doing too much these days. My name is Shane Bigelow. I am a special education teacher. I teach here in uh, central New Jersey, out in Middlesex County. Um, as we talked before, this is my first day of summer, so I'm not doing too much right now. But when I'm not teaching, I coach football, wrestling, and track. So I stay busy year-round. Um, I stay active, man. I, 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 that my, my career keeps me busy, and when I'm not doing that, my brother and I are out on the golf course losing golf balls and running across <laughs> old ladies' fairways and stuff. So and we're fishing wherever we can. So that's, I mean, the normal stuff. Like if my if my father was here, we'd be doing the, the exact same thing. And awesome. uh, I'm enjoying it. Awesome. awesome. You'd like where we live then because my house um, was built on an old golf course. So when we were digging up our garden, we found like 70 or 80 golf balls underneath our, our, our earth. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> you probably have had a field day over here. But, oh, uh, me, and my, me and my brother yesterday at the golf course, and there were two giant tattooed guys, and these old ladies are looking at us more like trying to scoop balls out of the water, and he's almost falling in. It's, it's, it's a shit show every time we go, but it's always hilarious. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, let's, let's jump into it then. So we'll see you. Um, um, when, you when you came along, I see your dad was already a wrestler, I believe. Was it sort of 1988? Yeah, so I was, yeah. Born, I was born June 9th, 1988, and uh, I believe, like, uh, I want to say May, May, early May 88, that's when he either won the Royal Rumble or the Survivor Series or something. He got his really big early push when, like, uh, Hulk Hogan was going with – it was, like, him and one-man gang and, like, him and Andre the Giant and when it was, like, Hogan and Giant and all those guys. So that was, you know, prime 88 to – early 89 and then he ended up doing japan stint for a little while yeah because and then he went back to the wwf in the early 90s so so talk about obviously just to give a little bit of background anyone out there who's listened there won't be anyone listening to this i don't think that no doesn't know who bam bam biglow is but up to that point so obviously before before you came along the early part of his career i, I thought this was a really cool fact he debuted in 1985 his debut match was at studio 54 in a match um that was promoted by paul Heyman. i mean that's yeah. a pretty that's a pretty good start really and, and to be like studio 54 like that's a really really famous venue yeah. and you would think like that they're like shutting down like disco fever to have like a bunkhouse brawl but they pretty much did like they they shut down studio 54 yeah for paul Heyman to promote uh, he probably believed he wasn't even bam bam bigelow then he was probably crusher yurkov mm. then okay. and like you know that's so cool because i live 30 40 miles away from new york city and like that's such a poignant 70s 80s staple and for his career to get kicked off in the in studio 54 cool. like Oh, I can only imagine that show. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize as well, because obviously we'll get into it and uh, when he gets into ECW later on, but I didn't realize he had that sort of link with... Was Paul Heyman someone who was always sort of there f around his career or was when he got to ECW later on, was that him kind of going back to, to Paul's company after all that time? I think it, I think it's what you said, like going back to this was a guy when early on in a career, we both started young in the business trying to figure it out. And, 
you know, knew, they knew what to expect from one another and they had gone and become wildly successful in their own mm -hmm. fields. And then, you know, by the time ECW came about and it came to fruition when my father joined, it was, I mean, it's history. Yeah. After that. Absolutely. Yeah. He, part, I mean, he was pretty much part of history everywhere he went. I don't think there's many stars that was so decorated, even though he didn't win any belts in the WWF. I mean, again, we'll get into my own memories as we go along as well, but he's, he's one of the guys synonymous with that era that I absolutely love of wrestling sort of throughout the nineties. And he seemed to have, you know, some level of success everywhere he went, you know, whether it's Japan or, or, you know, what he did in the WWF and that, but what are your earliest memories of being around the wrestling industry through him? So like my my very earliest memories are are like picking him up at Newark and at JFK at like three o'clock in the morning, like driving up and we had this white Ford Bronco like OJ Simpson at the time. And we would drive it up and I'd be in the back, like not in a seat, just bouncing around at like three o'clock in the morning. My mom would drive him up. We'd pull up to a terminal and that would be like two, three times a week for maybe five, six years because He'd be in Japan for three days. He would literally, they would fly him out, come to Japan, do two shows, fly back. He'd do two weeks in Malaysia, come back. So those were my earliest memories. And then, then like when I, when I was old enough to, you know, 92 to 95, we were going to every East, everything East of the Mississippi that you drove to WWF, we went to. So like, weekends like if, if they were doing tv tapings on a weekend or if they were doing a, a pay-per-view on weekends you know like we were at it if it was because yeah. mainly in connecticut it was mostly in new york you know it was up and down the east coast we were down in florida all the time we would be we went out to vegas i mean we, we did it as much as possible to where we couldn't miss school and it and he could take us along he would because they used to drive everywhere every single place like it we have a small airport by, by me. I remember that, you know, there'd be shows where either Vince or whoever, whatever promoter would hire a car to come pick us up at the house, take him around the corner to, to the, the place and wall, the airport and fly him on a little private jet just to go do this show. Like last minute, someone gets right. hurt. Like just the, the stuff like that. And then him coming home from Japan with these like figurines, you know, cause they have just like the whole Godzilla culture and like, yeah, yeah. It was so cool to have that. Like I'm covered in, in Japanese tattoos because that's just like something when I was a child, like he would come home to the, with these magazines and, and, and it would just be like pictures of him and Vader and like all this stuff. And like, you couldn't read any of it. So you would like, as a kid, you would fill in the, the, the storylines in between. And it was so cool. And like, now that I'm older, I'm start, I start to see like the matches of him when he's in Japan. And what I think is really funny is what you could see how loose they are in Japan. They like, you can hear them talking, you know, and okay. you got the Japanese commentators are speaking their language and everybody there is understands Japanese, but they know that we're the only ones that speak English. So in the middle of the thing, they'll hit him and they'll be like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> and they're just cursing everybody out and the whole thing. And like, you know, they're dying and laughing and having such a good time, but it's like so free that they can just do whatever they want. And like, it's cool, like to like sit back and watch that and like see him, you know, 28, 29 years old, like I'm 33, 33 years old in Japan with like Vader yeah. and just 
having the time of their life. It, it's just something so cool to be able to like, uh, you know, go back and, and YouTube and watch that stuff. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. There are so many stars. A few of the guys I've spoken to who wrestled out in Japan as well, they've all said that Japan was an experience all of its own. And quite a few of them, it was their favorite place to go because it was so different and a lot more kind of, let's say serious, but, you know, the Japanese wrestling style is a lot more genuine, really. To, you know, they, they hit hard up there. Yeah. Yeah, they have, like, a genuine care for it to where, mm. like, we're we're very Americanized and we we love and hate it and like the Japanese are very formal and they they even though that you're a heel or you're a face they're very like they love the show because they paid for the show like they here I want to go I want to go see Bam Bam Bigelow and I want to go see him beat you know the dog shit out of <laughs> like they're they have just very different motivations so like out there those people like you're not gonna get heckled like here no which that's what makes it awesome here but at the same time like i could see why that's like a, a mount rushmore or an olympia like that you have to make it to there yeah yeah it's sounds so cool i've heard a little bit about uh, him and him and vader at some point whether it's true or not they didn't really get on or they had a bit of a love hate thing going on do you remember anything about vader from back then did you did you get to be around them at all when they were together their careers only coincided in japan like mm -hmm. i don't I, it would be very rare that they ever cross paths in the States. But I think that's more of just the, the illusion of people getting interviewed over the years and just being like that they didn't get along because my grandmother, like a month ago, gave me a stack of pictures from the time my mother and father went to Japan. And Vader was right there. You know, like the famous picture of Vader with the black eye? And he's yes. Like, uh, like yeah. that. My mother, they so they were at the Mike Tyson fight in Japan. My mother has a picture of him with like, with like, cake or some type of food in his mouth, like this. Like, so if they weren't cool, I, I don't know, man. Like, that's yeah, pretty, yeah. She's got pictures of him, like they're something that's so deeply personal that where like when you think of Vader, you think of that picture of him with that giant shiner, and it's like okay. my mother and father was sitting two rows away away from him. Like mm -hmm. they both went to that, and it's. They, you know, there might be locker room beefs, but you're both apex guys in, in, in your game. You know, yeah. Peter is a highly educated NFL athlete. My father is a freak athlete from the streets of Neptune, New Jersey. So like you got two alphas that, and they pretty much build them as the exact same person. Because if you have Vader and you have Bam Bam Bigelow, the only time they ever come together is in Japan, but their careers, like, Bam Bam leaves WWF, Vader goes in. My father goes to WCW. Like, it was like they filled the void for one another. So, you know, I, I, they, I only heard, I can only see good things, but I could see where people see two alphas, just like yeah. button heads. Because why would you concede? You're both at the top of your game. But I'm telling you, they understood when they got together, they made some serious yeah. great matches like because those are you won't see that anywhere else in no. a super heavyweight match like 700 pounds of guys that could fly like that yeah. i was quite late on actually when i realized it was um i, I don't know what it was it's some independent magazine that we got over in the uk and they had this quite famous sort of set of pictures of them together with you know posing with the iwgp 
tag team titles in their hands now. I never knew they were a team at any point, let alone the champions. And I, I sort of looked at them and I thought, that was back then I couldn't see any of the footage from over there. You know, it's almost like it was just having to imagine what it was like to see them together and the brutality <laughs> would imagine that they unleashed. <clears throat> this whole like that whole country, that whole like continent, Asia, mm. like they got you know the way the way people around here think of like the greatest tag teams mm. of the United States and United Kingdom, like they're the number ones in Japan. There is no question. Like the Steiners went over there and they were phenomenal. Yeah. I always watch them as a tag team duo, but like you're not gonna get Crusher, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Big Van Vader, a better tag team duo than that. No. no. And they're that's both... Typhoon times 10. Yeah, well, that's it. When you look at the bigger teams that you had over in America, yeah, natural disasters, I suppose. They're very grounded. They're very they're a bit slower. They do a lot on the map. And then you look at, I mean, Bam Bam really set the bar for what you can do as a 400 pounder and i suppose vader was in there as well he didn't he didn't do i don't think he was he was as good and could do what you, your dad did but they were both on that level you know so I mean, it, it had to be just like one one yeah you know like i i read an article where it was like who had the better suplex it's like one of them went out one night hit that thing and the other one next drinking beers goes i'm gonna hit that thing yeah. higher the next night you know like and that's what it just must have been is like two guys just trying to one up the next guy and just elevating each other's career because yeah they would come home with like it was so beneficial to go to japan they would come home with just stacks of cash i <laughs> loved it i loved it so much so yeah. much I've, awesome. I've heard it pays well i mean you really had to earn it out there by the sounds of it but you know it's worth going out there so, oh yeah uh, yeah so just talk going back to one thing you said in there actually just quickly about where where they went they kind of just like ships passing in the night almost when when your dad left the wwf and then vader came in at the royal rumble they actually advertised i remember bam bam for the royal rumble match in 96 they were advertising him and obviously he left in between and i just kind of wonder what it would have been like to have them both in that match would they have had that moment that yokozuna and vader had there but for them to have that would have been pretty epic yeah i don't know i i like i don't i don't see how it could have worked you know like one guy would have got brushed aside and one guy yeah. would have got pushed and like the way their careers the ships passing in the night and like mm. meeting in japan like that was perfection yeah they, yeah they did they were both very smart businessmen like they knew you know like if they ended up in the same company, we both have a very similar sell. Mm. You know, you can't have two of that. Mm. That's why Andre the Giant would butt heads with so many, and I'm speaking like freaking out, would butt heads with my father when he was young because you can't have two giant super heavyweights come in and here is a 26, 27-year-old kid mm. who's going 100 miles an hour and Andre's at the latter half of his career. So he's going to grab him by the back of the head and whop him in the head yeah literally giving them concussions and it's like it's just they so, had to, they had to be a part that, that was one thing that i've heard as well and again something i i i didn't know about is whether it's true whether it's it's, it's not been worthy right but your dad when your dad left the wwf in 88 it was just shortly after a bit of an altercation or 
or, or something that was happening between him and Andre after a match they had. Did you hear of anything or do you remember anything about why he left back then? No, no. Um, like, no reason in particular other than actually how. No, that's why. <laughs> like, I never really heard anything like with a particular incident with Andre. I, I just know that like when they were in the ring together, Andre would literally beat the dog shit out of my mm. father. Like my father never told me that anybody hated him more than Andre. Like he would grab him by the back of the neck. And like, that's a big dude amongst normal men. And that's a giant making it a giant look normal. Like, yeah. and he, he would just bear palm in the head. And, and, but they had a very long working career because mm. for two years, you're doing 260, 270 shows in a year so you know they didn't get along that well they they yeah. worked an awful lot together so I, I think andre probably i don't know i don't know obviously you can't you can't speak on their behalf or anything but maybe looked at what your dad could do in the ring and maybe thought you know i'm gonna show him what i can do you know to show that i've still got the edge size wise but um yeah i mean i i, I see seeing your dad cartwheel for the first time is something that really stuck with me. It's like, how, how did a guy that size be that? I thought, what was his background sort of sports-wise before he got he into was, wrestling? He was an amateur. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal amateur wrestler. High school All-American. He, um, he, he, <laughs> he placed in the States back in New Jersey. Uh, amateur wrestling is, is very touted. It's one of the top five in the nation statewide for caliber of wrestling especially for such a small state mm. so back then he he was wrestling against guys who were future olympians he lost to bruce Baumgartner, who was a u.s heavyweight olympian multi gold medalist like those were guys that he was wrestling against in high school and he was a, a phenomenal football player there was actually rumors that he was offered uh tryouts with the redskins out of high school he ended up getting uh expelled his senior year of high school right before the wrestling season and he was like there was nobody that was going to touch him on the mat that season like he was going to be and they only wrestled 20 25 matches back then he was going to walk through everybody like he there's there's folklore about him with a broken leg scaring kids so bad on the other team to forfeit like (laughs) just just by stepping on the scale like this he's his life is a movie in and of itself but he was a phenomenal amateur athlete and he would have been, he would have been professional in anything he had done. That's how successful and how athletic he was. Like, so the cartwheels, the walking on your hands, like that stuff was commonplace. Like that was, you know, that's a wrestling practice for him. And he yeah. was all about that stuff. Um, yeah. He could throw a ball 80 miles an hour and he could hit a 500 foot softball. Like this dude, he was just so unbelievably talented and, and he was fishing and hunting and packing lips. And it was, it was just a sight to be seen. Like yeah. it, it really, really was just, you'll never see another person like him ever. He, he ever. could have had his pick of anything really that he wanted to do then, in a, in a sense. So um... he, he had, you know, he made, he had a very tough draw you know, he became, you know, he had felonies, he had difficult situations and he, he always somehow, you know, overcame them and came out of top and ended up, you know, where he was. And yeah. the guys, he's a folk legend. 
He is. Around he is. here, he's a legend. I, I move nicely on to sort of you know my first memories of him. So I I started watching wrestling when I was about seven years old. So I was sort of 91, 92. And I first remember seeing Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, still one of my favourite matches, really, for nostalgic purposes, was his match at the Royal Rumble 93 against the Big Boss Man. Um, because it was the first time I didn't know, I didn't, at that point, I didn't know his past. I didn't know he'd been in the WWF before and that. I just saw him as this big, mean, angry. His his attire set him aside as well. It was so bright, so eye-catching. I still love that look he had. But it was the fact that he was coming in and he just took apart this guy who had sort of dominated late 80s, early 90s for me when I was watching it. You know, he kind of, the big boss man was one of the, the big, big men up to that point. And he just came in and sort of rolled him over. And he was so intimidating what he was doing. He's slapping his head and the tattoos and everything. It's like, as a sort of seven, eight-year-old kid, he, as I've referenced it in other episodes, he's one of the type of heels who made me fear for my favorites because of what he, because of what he was doing you know literally i mean the 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 way he hit out at people um you really felt every blow even watching it at home you know um and that 93 stint for me is what i always tend to go back to it's one of my favorite eras but what made him for me is the king of the ring um, I was a massive Bret Hart fan, so I loved the story they were telling. And I, I couldn't, I don't think there's been, I, I did a, a show on the King of the Ring a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about my favorite King of the Ring being that that whole event. But for that final, I don't think there's been a match like it. They really told that story um, because you you feared for Bret, you wanted him to win, and then your dad's in there. It's just picking up the pieces, and um, you know, I mean. What was, I mean, that's that's sort of the image that I had as an eight-year-old. I mean, what was he like? I'll get into the obvious question. I suppose, what was he like away from the ring? You know, what was it like growing up around him? What was he like at home? There, we, there was no wrestling. It was it was like, what season is it? Is it fishing season? Is it hunting season? Uh-huh. Uh, you got, do you got a baseball game? Do you have a, you know, did my brother have a wrestling match? Like, it was, it was dad, normal, you know, like, let's go, let's make up for the time that I was away. Or, you know, I just spent two weeks doing what everybody else wanted me to do. Mm. I'm going to spend two weeks doing what I want to do. Let's go drive down to Florida and go bass fishing on a lake. Like, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want, like, he was, oh, the thing with, he never got to take the character off. Yeah, no. Like, you, you tattooed it on your head, dude. Like, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. he would... We'd go out in public and he'd put up a hoodie and he'd put a hoodie on and he would wear these Ray-Bans and all his friends would make fun of him. They call him the Unabammer, like the Unabomber. <laughs> yeah. Because he would just have this, this thing down because he would hide his head because then he just looked like a big dude from New Jersey with tattoos. Like people, yeah. you know, but everybody around here kind of knew him, but he'd have his glasses on. We'd go to the mall. There'd be people, oh, like he was like a jungle gym. Kids, kids would be climbing all over him, all over the place. So like when he was home, he wanted to relax. He wanted it. We were, we were, he was in a deer stand. He was out on the boat. And most of the time he was sinking the boat while we were on it. But you know what? It was always fun. It was always something outside, you know, and, and it, it was just, there's, there was never, 
dull moment and we were always doing something, you know, and it was making up for the time that was, that was taken. Mm. And I, ch- I cherish that now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you remember what it was like when obviously then he had to go away again? Cause you know, you hear about him being on the road, you know, 300 days a year or whatever it was. Um, you know, what was it like when he was gone, you know, as a family? I had a really very, I had a very strong, I still have a very strong family structure. I had a very strong, we have a very strong family structure. My mother is a 20 year teacher. She took care of things in the house. We have great family. Everybody was involved and they still very live very locally. It was, they picked up where he left off and, and you know, it wasn't, it, there wasn't like an absence where things shut down. Like every, mm-hmm. You know, my we made every baseball practice, we made every football practice, we made every single thing, and then some. Like we were always so active, and and it would, it, you know, it, it afforded me to get really close to my grandparents because where my mother would go to college, you know, she went to college, finished school, or she was working. That's where my grandmother, grandfather, my aunts and uncles, and everybody stepped in. So it was it was a community to raise my brother, sure. sister, and myself. And we turned out all right. I think so. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's debatable. <laughs> Two sides to every story. <laughs> okay. So, um, what? Another obvious question. So, what's your what are your favorite matches or moments that you got to witness of his career? You know, whether it's you saw it on TV or whether it was one that you saw in person. Man, I say I say it every time. I loved everything ECW, every single thing ECW, because I hit that maybe eight years old to eleven years old. Those three years, and like you're talking Philadelphia shows every weekend. Like I loved everything ECW. Like even so much so to where like my favorite moments aren't even moments that involve my father. You know, it was it was you know, moments backstage hanging out with Chris Candido or moments backstage hanging out with Jerry, Jerry, the wall who was an ECW guy ended up being a WCW guy. He was, a he's big in Japan, like in, in backstage, like seeing characters like balls Mahoney and seeing like the blue meanie and like yeah. just being in the backstage. Like I remember Yokozuna giving me a hundred dollar bill telling me to go get a Coke from forum and, oh. and like not looking at it and then trying to put a hundred dollar bill in, in the machine and not working. And then like pushing the button and the Coke pops out because in, the, in these stadiums, all the vending machines are free. So I go to give him a Coke and a hundred dollars. And he's like, nah, brother, keep that. And I'm like, wow. Man. and it's just like little things like that, like meeting Bret Hart, Bret Hart was so cool. So like you say that the, um, the King of the Ring, that whole series, like, I, I, I love that. But Brett loved my father because he, he used to like getting the, the dog shit kicked out of him. Every match, you felt like Bret Hart was gonna die. Yeah, like you were watching a Bret Hart match, and like, I want to say I watched one Bret Hart match, and my father was beating him so badly, and Jerry Lawler is standing on the second tier, and he is in Bret Hart's mother's face, and he, yeah, he's like. You fat old lady, look at her, <laughs> look at him buying. And I'm like, I'm, I'm watching this now. And I'm like, geez, <laughs> Jerry Lawler is just ripping into them. He's yeah. like, 
he's dead, he's done, he's a bum. And like, sure enough, in true Bret Hart fashion, he does the whole like arm drag, picks up, and then he comes back and yeah. does like the whole big thing. But he loved that. And it played so well because like my father didn't give a shit. He just wanted to put on a good show yeah. and would beat the brakes out of Bret and then just let him let him have it. Like, and they, and they work so well. So like, I remember that stuff and i you said the boss the big boss man i remember like the last time i was actually like vested into it to where i didn't realize that that like my father that was my father and it wasn't his career like oh i thought the characters were mm-hmm. when my father was beating the brakes out of the big boss man he was throwing up on tv and i'm like yeah kill him and i was so amped and, and like, I really wanted like the big boss man to lose. And I was so against him and all this stuff. But like now that was like the last time I was really like a super fan. Cause after yeah. that, I was like, oh, that's, that's my dad. <laughs> you know, I was too cool then after that. It's, but, it's, when you're growing up as a young fan, I don't know if it's just me, but um, in fact, especially back then you, you were expected to cheer the good guys. Having your dad as one of the bad guys, did that change your sort of outlook on it? Did you obviously not care and you you were you were sort of siding with the heels more or it, it just it all who, who I identified with. Like, you know, like it it was all I, I liked him as a heel, but when he when he was a with a face like that he was with Hulk Hogan and he was yeah. with like all all like the big names and it, it was like it was it was just like a brighter, happier time. Like when he was, when he was a heel, like I'm almost positive. Like people on the street would be like, your dad sucks. Like, <laughs> dude, like <laughs> you kidding me? Like I'm a nine year old kid. They're like, and you suck too, kid. And I'm like, so I liked him as a face. It was, it was a lot easier on yeah. my day to day. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I, I, I thought it was jumping ahead because I wanted to talk about sort of the middle bit, you know, 94. I don't know. I kind of felt WWF almost didn't seem to know where to put him because, you know, going off from working with, you know, Undertaker and Bret Hart and that, and then he got into a feud with Doink and Tatanka and, and that. And then sort of towards the end of 94, they didn't seem to, he, he sort of seemed to be bouncing around the middle a little bit. I mean, did you ever get anything from him as to what his expectations were in the WWF or was he kind of just enjoying the ride? Yeah. He, he took it as a business, hmm. you know, like there at the, at that time. And it's, it's widely talked about that, like the click had influences throughout the WWF. So hmm. from my understanding now is he might've known that there was only so high he was going to go within the company. Like for him to get the, the co-main event in WrestleMania, mm. like why are you going to co-main? Like there's only one main event and that's yeah. the last thing. That's what everybody came for. But somebody somewhere in production for their ego, they needed to list it as the co-main event. Mm. But like, me as a person in just my regular world, if, if you're going, if you need to label something like that and devalue it just to fill somebody else's ego, then yeah. this is not necessarily the place for me. And maybe that's how he felt at the time. So, you know, he took it for what it was and he had a great time with Lawrence Taylor. He developed a, mm. a fantastic friendship. They played golf extensively. Like they were supposed to be 
you know, training in the, in, in like a blacked out ring so that yeah. nobody knew about. And, you know, they were out golfing. So like <laughs> he, he had such a great time and enjoyed it. And it was, I don't think he let it get to him. You know, there's, there's a lot of guys that really let it get to them and really let it affect their careers. And, and he knew that at the end of the day, cause even if you look at some of his interviews, he goes, I was the highest paid jobber in the world. Uh, you know, like I got paid to lose and he didn't really care. Like yeah. you, you want to fly me out to Japan to go step into a cage with chemo Leopold and you're going to give me $75,000 and I don't have to do anything else. I just got to step foot in that cage. Come on, man. Yeah. I'd take that. I'd take that if, if, a, if a boxer gave me that, like I'm going to get <laughs> in about 30 seconds flat, but cash in hand. Yeah. And, it, and he was smart enough to, you know, to take the money and, and go where it was successful and, mm. you know, not get caught up in a, a knockdown drag out to where people are watching a dark side of the ring about his career because he didn't let it and he separated house and state. When, yeah. when I'm working, I'm working. When I'm off, I'm off. And if my work in, interferes with my home, then I'm going to go find somewhere else. And It's, it, it's got to be a, quite a brave move in that kind of industry, really, to... Well, brave in a sense. I mean, I, I somebody has got to, to be on the losing side in a match and be able to be able to take that and take it on quite a stint. I mean, 95, we'll talk about LT in a minute, but sort of towards the end of 95, as a fan... I've, I thought it was quite shocking, really. You had this guy who a couple of years ago was going through everyone and all of a sudden he's losing the people like Gold Dust. Um, on his, I know now he's on his way out. So obviously, you know, putting over the new guys and whatever was probably part of it. But being able to take that and think, switch off your ego for a second and think, I don't know, support my family or whatever. You know, he was thinking at that point, you know, taking the money and, and being able to rise above professionally what your character was going to be portrayed as i suppose it, it, very very unselfish like even something uh, not even hearing from him i, I ran into uh I an old wrestler we called him paul eb he wrestled for the ecw he was he was a lower card guy and um he told me a story of my father he goes he goes your father didn't really get wrapped up in the in the belts and all this stuff and he told me a story about the time in ECW where my father get, dropped a belt to Van Dam, Rob Van Dam, yeah. he said that he said that Paulie or management at the time had came up to him and was like, "When are you going to drop the belt? You got? Can you drop the belt to Rob? Can you drop the belt to Rob?" And, and for a couple matches leading up to, I guess, the pay per view or the event that he ended up doing it, he was like, "Nah, nah, nah." And one, the one time the guy Paulie who was telling me the story that was there, they were in the town that he goes, they asked him again. And my father goes, I'll do it. If you give Paulie a job and they go, done. done. And he dropped the belt to Rob. Right. Now, you know, Van Dam ended up taking that and completely turning it into a, a, a hall of fame career. I mean, he was off. RVD was the shit before then. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there the when they did his whole Hall of Fame thing, they they kind of put that as the the jumping point of his career for everybody to, you know, to start noticing him. But everybody that knows ECW knows RVD was the shit before then. But once he got that, I think it was the international title or something like that. That's that's how the WWE kind of saw it as like, 
this guy is just springboarding and he just yeah. did not lose after that. Yeah. But, but that goes back like something as simple as like having a belt and holding on to it and then just being like, you know, all right, well, give my buddy a job and you could have it. Like it's yeah. that don't affect my bottom line. My what we agreed upon, my contract is yeah. fine. Like me holding this, he probably was like, listen, I don't want to I don't want to have the burden of potentially losing this freaking thing in the airport. Yeah. So take it because they're heavy. Yeah, and they gotta bring them with them. Like, congratulations, pass the torch to you. You got to carry this 25 pound leather thing now in your bag that's completely full. So, like, that's just, I'm sure he was just like, get this thing away from me. That's <laughs> what when I was growing up, I always thought, actually, yeah, was it the actual belt? Did they get to take him home? Did they just have to hand it over to the office at the end of the show and they give it back to him at the next one? And did you, you kind of, you know, grew up, grew up with him with these belts around the house? Yeah, so they That's took him cool. home. Yeah, they, they always took him home, which was really cool. And, like, at least when I was a kid, because I'm looking at a picture on my fridge right now of my grandfather, my, my late grandfather, standing on the my porch <laughs> of my house with Yokozuna's world championship belt like this. <laughs> so, like, it's just, like, and then there's one with him with the intercontinental belt. Like, we had – ECW like my there's pictures of like my brother and sister like standing on the bed with like my mother holding the ECW like extreme hardcore championship belt on my around my brother's waist like just do just stuff like that that was so cool that like you know like dad won the strap like he's coming home with it like you knew it was it was cool like you like winning the Stanley Cup you're gonna bring it around yeah. and but yeah there I, was, there I was i was making them out of cardboard boxes and that back then you know thinking <laughs> i was cool so wow that that kid's the coolest kid around town that kid that's that's got the bandana real tight that's got his <laughs> homemade cardboard yeah. not, not fucking with that kid <laughs> unfortunately it wasn't like that round for me but there we go never mind but um so kind of let's stick around the ecw for just a second i'm bouncing all around the place here but it's just it's just stuff that's coming to me um because as a fan i wasn't overly familiar and probably still not massively familiar with his time in ecw as i am with wcw and wwf mainly because over in the uk we didn't really get ecw on tv um so i i kind of i've, I've heard snippets i've seen obviously legendary bits about him going through the ring with Taz, I think, and stuff like that. Just sort of talk us through some of the more memorable moments or matches he had that you sort of still hold dear from that time. I know you said you you like that whole part of his career, but is there anything in particular? I, I remember, and this is not even a match, right? I remember getting knocked out by a guy at an ECW match. This is how awesome ECW was, like punching 10-year-olds in the face. There's no <laughs> holds no. no hold bar. So we would go to these ECW matches and they were at various hockey rinks, which was also another awesome. <laughs> they were at various hockey rinks throughout the tri-state uh, area. And it would always be a back, but it would be like a hockey rink. And then there'd just be like a thousand chairs all around. So my father would just be like, all right, well, here's the backstage. These are the two guys, you know, and go, you can go walk around the, the concessions and go watch the matches. So, I'm like walking around the outskirts and it's like Sabu and somebody else. It might be like Sabu and Sandman go like over the guardrail and they're just beating the shit out of each other. And they're now in the stand, just like 
kendo sticking each other in the face, just like bah, 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 back and forth. And of course, ECW had more fights in the stands than had in the actual matches. Yeah. So like everybody just whoo, swarms right around them. This dude who is just completely boofy blitzed and just is just like, sees <laughs> me. And I'm not a small kid, but I might be like 10 years old at the time. And just like, doesn't just go to like face palm. He's just like, backhand smacked me in the head i'm like and the type of like i've never been punched by a grown man i'm a i'm a 10 year old never been punched where you get hit and you you lose your breath where you're like (laughs) so sure enough i'm i'm like balling i don't know what the hell's going on never been punched by (laughs) and i go backstage and my dad looks at me and he's like sitting and he's got this big old lip and he's like what happened and i'm like I don't know, man, this guy with a t-shirt, a Booker T t-shirt, just punched me right in the head. I don't know what the hell. It just said, with a Harlem Heat t And he's just like, find him. I'm like, what? He's like, find him. And like, the show almost shut down. Like, a couple matches go in. And this is how I knew how serious it was. Chris Candido, who was wildly successful, had been in the career forever, was scared to death. They we find this guy, brought him in the back, and I, he, like little children, my father said to Candy, "He goes, you're gonna watch him." And like they went behind this curtain, and all you just keep hearing is just he's like <laughs> loud smash. He's like, "You want to hit a kid?" <laughs> and Chris and Candido was sitting there, and he's he's like, "Oh, big man, how you doing? You all right?" Uh, you know, he had this real high pitched voice, like yeah. body Donna's. He had yeah. this real high pitched voice, and my father came out and sat back down. He's like, he's like, that ever happens again, you come right back. I, and like, okay, this dude. So the police come in. This guy is so drunk, he's spitting on the police. He tries fighting the cops anyway. And I just remember like watching in the background. My father just got up and went back to his seat, and tied his boots and went out <laughs> to the match. And like the whole backstage was just like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's what i remember that's what i remember and and like those guys are the the nicest guys they were they were like uncles and and like growing it's super jimmy superfly snooka and like you know king kong bundy and like when my father's matches were going on those are the guys that are sitting and watching you like yeah that's cool that's very cool yeah i mean what other place can you go and you know go yeah you get these, you know, um, parent take your kid to work days kind of thing. I don't know if they do them so much anymore, but I don't think many people have got those kind of stories from those, to be fair. No, it's pretty cool. No, no, and and like bring and like uh, show and tell day, like bring your bring your yeah. parents to school day, like <laughs> you know, it was a little shocking. The teachers were like, did you do that? Did you do yeah, that? Of yeah, course. that's cool. Of course, my brother did it. My sister did it. I dressed up one year uh, somewhere. My mother probably has it as blackmail. I dressed up in his uh, triple B outfit and wore it for Halloween. Awesome. And, like, showed up to school and, and like put like a, a skull cap on, like drew the flames on it. Like <laughs> that, uh, we, we had fun with it. That's it was brilliant. cool. That yeah. is brilliant. Oh, well done. So let's go, let's go back in time. I said I was going to circle back to this because one of the the biggest i suppose most famous moments in his career or times in his career was the lawrence taylor 
uh, kind of the few months they were building towards that and the match at WrestleMania. I know a lot, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of, like I was saying, his character in WWF, a lot of people say this is when it kind of took a turn because they allowed LT to beat him, like you say, in the main event of WrestleMania. But, you know, what do you, I, I understand you were at the event. You got to be around. Obviously, you really got to be around them probably outside the ring as well. But what, what was the whole feeling around that time between your dad and LT and sort of, you know, your memories of the build-up to that night? Like I said, they were supposed to be training and they were out on the golf course. <laughs> I was out, I, I played this morning and I'm, I'm looking at the club and I'm like, I'm pretty sure LT left half of these clubs to my father. You know, wow. like it, it, that's, that's, LT lived in the tri-state area, lived in New York. He had friends up and down. They had, they shared a lot of mutual friends because when he was playing for the Giants from, 85 to 95 whichever that's when the peak of wwf had gone on so you're talking about athletes that were all in their prime in their respective fields so they they lived it up i mean lauren it's lawrence taylor like you're not not gonna hang out with lawrence taylor (laughs) but they had a good time and the for for them to say that they let lt beat him that was the plan all along like You can't just hype this all up and then just have one of your superstars beat this guy. Then you can never do it again. No. Never bring – like if if every time Shaquille O'Neal shows up to the WCW, they beat him, they're going to be like, well, why are we going to bring this dude back? Well, obviously Lawrence Taylor and like through God's will, they got him – he got him through that match mm. to beat him. And, and that's – that's the thing whenever you know people trash that match i know the whole year again i've done an episode on how bad 95 was even though i've got my own fond memories of it (laughs) you know um they sort of say it was one of those low moments and that but that that a non-wrestler could beat a wrestler like him but how good did your dad make him look you know he had to do that you know for him to for lt to look impressive your dad had to lead most of that it's one of those things, and it's just like one of those things widely respected. Mm. Like, there for you to take someone that is not in your field, even remotely in your field, and get him up to speed and make it look like he's done this his entire life, whether you want to criticize it or whatever, mm. for someone, and I believe it was Kevin Nash. I, I met when I was in college, my friends and I, when he was in TNA or involved around TNA, we went out and we met these guys at a bar and he almost elbowed my buddy in the head. But Kevin Nash, they, he said, we knew that your father could, could carry him. And, and in, in the wrestling world, they knew that, that his abilities were capable enough that you could put anybody out there and he'd make them look good. And, and you know, that's a testament and a respect within the industry. And that's the only thing I've ever really heard in regards from people who knew that match on a personal level. Like, obviously, fans will criticize it for what it is because, you know, it's not the showmanship. But it's one of the first time a superstar like that from that crosses over into the WWFWWE world. You know, one of the first times where he seg- they've segued superstars into a main event at and been able to yield fans. That was the litmus test for all these guys, you know? So 
the person and it's it's a a weighted selection like the person that they chose to to carry that match is somebody that they have the utmost confidence in the that could have completely made or break that whole company yeah yeah it's, it's a it's a bit of a risk a calculated risk i suppose but you know yeah. i i yeah i like to think as, as much as wrestlemania 11 is not high on people's list as their favorites of wrestlemania history i got a soft spot for it you know, it was, yeah, I, I thought the last two matches really pulled up the rest of the show. Um, it's just, you know why? It's because it's in the peak and that we were going back to what I said about co-main events before. Because if you had you taken the two matches and you flipped, then you mm. made my father's match the second to last match and you labeled that as a co-main event and you finished that with the match that it was, mm. we're, we're having a very different conversation about yeah. how that wrestlemania goes down mm. you know like you you're talking about the order of events because the everybody says the co-main event but they're t- they're tying it to the last match you if you switch the order of those two mm. wrestlemania 11 very well could be i mean you had salt and pepper out there <laughs> seeing shoot at the height of salt and pepper in hartford connecticut i mean i, I don't know about hartford connecticut now but it was pretty sweet back then so <laughs> that was that could have been the like greatest that. WrestleMania of them all no. <laughs> I like so, the color scheme the purple black it was cool yeah yeah I I I mean out of out of his um out of his outfits yeah that's one of my favorite sort of color combinations I think what the one that really will sit with me though is the first one I saw again for the Royal Rumble but it's very much the yellow on the black um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, he had one of the coolest looks, I think, with the tattoos and everything as well. Uh, very uh, eye-catching. I, I see a lot of guys now that try to, like, emulate and replicate the look, and, like, it just doesn't. And I'm extremely biased, so mm. I'm allowed to be. But <laughs> I, it just does – it falls short. It doesn't, like – I very rarely do you see a guy that's in a full body suit that it's not – Mm. that it's not like a cane gimmick or a gold dust gimmick or my mm. father that, but like, even if you see these guys in the Indies that are trying to pull off a full, like a full bodysuit that's a, mm. that's part of their character. It, it doesn't strike home as, as it doesn't hit as well. For some reason, it, like it just was every suit he came out with. Like I, I, I the purple one, I like the, the gray one the yellow and red one he even had one in japan that was like a, a tank top where, where you'd only really see him with vader and it had flames up the shoulders but it looked like a bro tank and like you got the pictures of like them two flexing like there is there are so many cool like yeah. iterations of his suit and like little funny things that were built into his suit like little there were these two little flame balls on his on his nuts on on i think the purple suit like and you know like something that people wouldn't see but like your your, your crotch is on fire like yeah. and he'd, he'd be like they'll like, be lo- they'll be looking for it now so that's weird i've read forums where people were like oh i bet that was stack you know? <laughs> my mom my mom could attest to it but she watched them so for all you haters on, on the go. internet 
they were washed. I don't know about <laughs> in between, you know, they, but they were washed. There you go. Just to set the record straight, where did the whole, the, 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 the fire and the flames look come from for him? Do you know? <laughs> so like I said, my father is a legend before the whole Bam Bam Bigelow character and him having the, the, Around here, the town Asbury Park has a big following with like Bruce Springsteen and like music community in the late 70s, early 80s. And then that whole community had like, there was bikers, there was musicians, there was tattoo artists. My father was very much involved in all of every Mm -hmm. bit of that. And he had gotten through probably being extremely drunk in one way or another. He had tattoos on the side of his head. He had like, shooting stars and like flames it was like a flaming ball on the side of his head so if you look at either left or right side of his head it's like a like a black mass of tattoos that's actually a cover-up of the original original tattoo okay so he had, he had flames on the side of his head he ended up being a bouncer slash bounty hunter and went on this absurd mission to mexico to go find this girl who was kidnapped by her boyfriend and he, and he had to go find him and his the guy that was with him got killed and shot in the throat and he ended up spending six months in a mexican jail and he would run through walls and then he would have to protect the judge so like and the judge granted him clemency there was this whole absurd he, there's a video on youtube of him explaining i'm pretty sure explaining the detail of this story yeah. but he spent like six months in a mexican jail granted him clemency he came back home spent six months in, in, in a regular jail here. And then like he became, he started joining the monster. He joined the monster factory as a means to sleep in an, in a hangar for a place to stay. And he was really just moving their rings at first. And so he would set the rings up for them and they would be like, well, you know, Scotty, can you work this guy out? We know you were an amateur wrestler and he moved above and beyond. I mean, the tale is in the story. There's a, there's a video on YouTube where he's maybe like 22 years old and he's in a, he's in a tattoo chair and he's getting his head tattooed by Gene Bernardo and they're interviewing him and then he's got no gloves on and it's like completely unsterile and you're like cringing, <laughs> but he's tattooing his head and my, my father, really young, he's telling, he's saying this, he's like, people love to hate, man. He goes, if I could just find that hatred in these people, I can make money. And I'm, and that goes back to what we said before is like, you know, he was a heel and he, he made yeah. money off losing, but he made money off of hatred. And that's, yeah. that's the wrestling business. People love to hate. This is the wrestling. And that's, what's amazing about it is it's one of the only sports that you'll watch because you hate somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to watch this to see you get your ass. Like, I, yeah. I, I, listen, I love football, but I'm not watching no team that I don't like. It's not in the card, but I might turn it on to watch Goldberg street get beaten. You know, I'm going to turn it on to watch. So like, I'm going to, the people love to hate. So yeah. and it, it's just, it's I see, yeah, no, I've never thought about it like that before. Actually, but yeah. Yeah, obviously that's that's the that's what sets wrestling aside. You know, you um you've got you got equal amounts to love and hate in there. I think that's why you can sit through a three hour show and always you know want to watch what's coming up. So. And people are so vested in it, like yeah, 
I like I said, I I'm walking down the street, people cursing me out, telling me my father sucks. Like, and this is seven, eight o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday. Like, <laughs> but you care enough about something, something yeah. that you don't like, that you watched on TV, that you know in the back of your head, it's just a show. But like, I, people's grandparents, like grandmothers, being like, I don't like him. Like, <laughs> that's what wrestling's all about, man. It, yeah, man. That I love that about it. And that goes right back to, you know, sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, when it first was becoming popular, I think, because, you know, you had the same back then, you had the really over-the-top heels that people wanted to see get their ass kicked. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. and it, in the in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it wasn't, it was an actual, like, it was touted as a boxing match. Like, it was, yeah. a, it was a, a professional amateur wrestling match. Like, those guys had half-hour, 45-minute-long matches. Mm. until they submitted somebody like it, mm. it has early roots in grappling and mma because the professor gorgeous georges and all those guys from eons ago yeah. they actually had to submit the guy that they were going against and put on a show at the same time like babe yeah. Ruth dabbled with professional wrestling like he did amateur wrestling but like just okay. crazy stuff like that Didn't know yeah that. <clears throat> it's one that one aspect of your your dad's career that that I was, I was just sort of mulling over earlier, actually, is that he had a range of, of managers um, through much of his sort of early career, it wasn't until sort of later on that I remember he didn't really need someone out there in the ring with him. Um, but he had a range, whether it was going back, Oliver Humperdinck, um, you had Luna Vachon, you had Ted DiBiase. Um, did you have a favourite sort of manager that you think suited him best, or, or even did he have a favourite as well that you knew of? He loved Oliver Humperdinck. Oliver okay. Humperdinck, he was such a nice man. Like I got to know Oliver personally towards the end of his life. He would Humperdinck was funny. He he used Facebook like an old man. So <laughs> like he would message you and he'd be like, Oliver Humperdinck says hello, Shane Bigelow, and I'd be like, Hump, like you know, like I'm like, Dick, what's up? They like seemed like a, like a normal. And he'd be like, oh, I love it. Like my mother loved Oliver. My father loved it because back then when you had a young talent like that, they would put them with these veteran, you know, like Paul Bearer with Undertaker. And yeah. they would put them with these veteran managers to to speak for them and, and foster them. So like Humperdinck was like the guy that trained him even like Larry's the Monster Factory. Yeah, they helped him and they did all that. But like Humperdinck guided him in shark infested waters. Like, mm. you know, he, he told them the rights and wrongs, the ins and outs. So I feel like my father will always forever be grateful to Humperdinck. Luna Vachon, that was more of just a gimmick. Mm. You know, they had, because at that time, it was uh, Doink and Dink with Luna Vachon and my father. Mm. And what's funny is, the second dink, which is Ray Apollo, the second doink, which is Ray Apollo, is my brother's godfather. And he <laughs> lives 45 minutes north of me. So, oh, wow. like, he was over our house and we were very close prior to that. Yeah. And when they were going through that whole gimmick, it was like Uncle Ray Ray and dad are going on a, on a, on a trip. And then it was like, it was funny because people think Luda Mishan is my mother. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's, you're really insulting my mother. Um, but it, it was like funny, you, you know? Yeah. And, and then like 
we'd have Dink and he'd be over the house. And I have like, we used to have, we've always had giant dogs. I had a great Dane. His name was Caesar. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is on, this is on the internet where they say that my father used to torture Dink. Well, Dink did it to himself. Right? <laughs> and I can attest to that because I was there. Okay. So like, the little person walks into a house with a dog that can literally eat food off out of the kitchen sink. This dog <laughs> would walk up to the kitchen sink and drink from whatever bowl was in it. This was right. Caesar. So, you know, dink, Caesar, <laughs> and come over to my house, barbecue. We always had that. He was always welcome. They were always, you know, they were friends. They were always laughing. They were always drinking. They were always having a good time. But you know, sometimes they were ball breakers and you got this big, great Dane. And sure enough, Dink comes walking in and they don't tell him about Caesar and Caesar's like gets in your face. He's big licky and he's got poor Dink pinned up in the corner and it's just licking his face and Dink's French Canadian. So if you've ever heard like a French Canadian guy, like freaking out, it's kind of funny. He's like, wow, wow, get the dog for me. So like, and you're not not gonna laugh like it's hilarious so eventually you get these are off but he i guess having been you know razzed his whole life he didn't take it too great no that time he did but other times he, he didn't but i i just remember <laughs> that era That's you know funny. and getting back to the managers like luna Vashana it was more of a gimmick you know mm-hmm. humper dick was really his his one true manager, Ted DiBiase, that was more of just the million dollar corporation mm-hmm. where they were just angling that to set up. Cause um, that lead, that led into the WrestleMania 11, right? Mm-hmm. He yeah. was part of the million dollar corporation. So yeah. um, that was more of just, yeah. Just gimmicks all around. I'd say at the time, it's interesting to hear that side of it really, because obviously Luna was the first one that I knew, with him you know as i went back and learned more about his career before i saw him with humperdinck and i mean as an image exactly as a a sort of the gimmick they fit perfectly you know because you've almost got the male and female version of each other so yeah you know wreaking havoc so so that's quite cool what's funny is like luna she was great like she had a report she'd be over my house my i remember my father taking her because you know how she had the veins in the side of her head yeah the first few years of her career, she would draw those on with stencil or whatever, you know, eyeliner makeup. And I remember my father taking her, specifically taking her to my cousin to go get those tattooed on the side of her head. Wow. Like that, that was like, you know, they were, they were close friends and outside of that. And, and she was welcome at our house to the point where she was getting her head tattooed at my house. Like that's, that's pretty. You know, they they were they were colleagues because Luna Vachon was not a manager. She was a yeah. She was a and and really part of that gimmick was the what's funny is they 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 said the stipulation was my father cannot touch Dink in the ring. So mm-hmm. if you go back and watch those matches, they would always mess around and they would play around because yeah. my father would get in the ring and you'd see Dink like start bugging out because he'd be like, you're not supposed to be doing this. Like you're, you're supposed to be out. I'm supposed to wrestle Luna. Yeah. And they'd always, he'd always like check him and be like, I'm coming for you. And then like, nah, nah, nah. But Luna would get in and she would go just balls to the wall. Yeah. And, and it's funny to watch because having known that like backstage dynamic between the four of them, 
Like you could see, you could see a lot of like uh, Doink in the corner, like with his head in his arm, <laughs> laughing his ass off because of Luna and Doink. Like they're they're laughing and talking shit and the whole match. Right. Like that that's probably the most fun two grown men can have without anybody knowing it. Like they were dying the that's whole brilliant. time. That's that's brilliant because again, that's another sort of part of his WWF run, which I think almost turned a bit comical, was that run with Doink and the match they had at WrestleMania. Entertaining as hell as it was. Um, I might I might watch that again with fresh eyes now. <laughs> so you definitely like if you go back and you see like some of their gimmicks and like because Matt Bourne was was a great Doink the Clown and yeah. he was dark he was twisted he was nasty and like mm. sinister like there there's no there's a you can obviously compare the two but like Matt Bourne's was like evil and if you're gonna have somebody try to refill that and mm. like Ray Apollo, he that's how he is outside of character, you know. So, like, yeah. the it's funny because you would see them like lock eyes and he'd squirt them. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, my father's like, you, motherfucker. <laughs> like, like they, because they're that's how they were. They were best friends outside of the ring, they yeah. they were fishing 24 7. So, like, when I talked about every time he would travel to Japan, the person sitting in the seat next to him nine times out of ten was going to clown right like that's that's what what it was like with them at that time and it it was so cool and even to the point where his children tony and tiana are extremely close with my brother sister and myself like we would still they would go away and like the wives and children's would have like you know we'd have like we go to the mall like it it was that it was cool it was really really cool and this really is sort of delving behind the curtain sort of thing because you you're great you you are made to believe at that point more so in that era because without social media and you know kayfabe still being around you you really do think that these guys hate each other that's how you were conditioned so yeah. you know learning that that was literally just on for the cameras and they were best friends behind it that's that's it's great that's and really cool it was it was great because you know doink he had the makeup so when mm. he took it off he had an anonymity to an yeah. extent like mm. they knew that he was he was a wrestler because he was wearing zubas and a fanny pack like and he was, <laughs> everyone did he was absolutely yoked but like you know <laughs> coming out of the locker room you know that's hulk hogan you know yeah. that's Bam Bam Bigelow. like he had a little bit of leeway to where you know, people would hound my father and he'd be able to like ball break. They'd be like, so who are you? He'd be like, I'm Chief J Strongbow. Like, and he was a ball breaker like that. And he (laughs) could just do and say, he was able to kind of like dip in and out so they could travel together. They could be, you know, kayfabe was a little less lax because nobody knew who he was and he he was able to control who he was. And and it, it, it was really cool. And they had a lot of fun with it. Like they have their own language which is, is, is funny. Like they were able to, to talk in the front of people, like completely talk in front of people and just be like, look at this jabroni. Like this guy is an absolute scrub. Like let's sign it and get out of here and go get a six pack. And this guy would be like, yeah. <laughs> and, and they would just be smiling and they'd be talking to each other. They'd be like, yeah. And, and they have a full conversation insulting you right to your face, but 
you, you didn't know it. You you were just like, oh man, these guys are so nice. We <laughs> were like insulting them, but they were just you know they had a language that they could speak yeah. behind closed doors that it was it was a sight to be seen. For sure. That's cool. That's really cool. So sort of winding up to we'll go back to the sort of tail end of his career. So looking at ECW and then briefly going back to WCW. <laughs> did he did he kind of have i don't know have more fun in that later part did, did was it more that he had a little bit more leeway a little bit more he was a bit more comfortable then with you know trying new things or or not having so much pressure on him as, as in the wwf i think looking back at it he he was in his like veteran you know i've mm. been there this is i'm gonna do it how i want to do it and like you see it in his character like in the wcw you know, his, his outfit slacks a little bit, you know, he starts wearing a t-shirt and the pants and, and a few things like he's, he's, he has a little bit more freedoms with his character and the storyline, like he, he loved Bill Goldberg, Goldberg loved him. Like they were, they, he loved that line, but that part of his career was bittersweet because he was in a lot of pain, you know, and he had bone spurs up and down entire cervical vertebrae, every bit of his spine. He had stenosis. He had micro fractures up and down. Like they, it was astonishing just to see the fact that he could walk like the doctors, the doctor, he had a back, he had spine surgery, maybe like three or four years that before he passed away. And the doctor was like, I seen this back on a man who worked in like quarries every day in their life. Like, so in the WCW, you know, 2001, 98 to 2001, it was a good time because he's making a lot of money. He, he had consistent salary checks, whether they were working or not. When AOL bought them out, he knew that he was going to get X amount of dollars for X amount of time. And, and he had that comfort. But that was the time where, you know, slowing down, everything catches up with you. I mean, he'd had multiple knee surgeries, elbow surgeries leading up to that but that was you know maintenance now it's you know now you're talking about structural like it you're it's taking you a half hour to get out of bed it's taking you an hour to get out of bed you know you got and then you start to have people now that you're in your career at wcw you know they're on tnt every night you know you get doctors who are who have no business in prescribing what they prescribe being like hey man let me get you know two or three autographs and then like in the same way you and i would go tip a bartender would be like yo here's a here's a script for refills on oxys like if if i gotta take two or three of those to get out of bed in the morning and you're gonna tell me i'm gonna jump through hoops and you're just gonna give me one of these piece of papers to sign every not 10 out of 10 of those guys are taking those because yeah there's no health care there's no there's no benefits package to where you know if i'm in the nfl and i break my leg you're gonna pay for my doctor now nah, i gotta go i gotta make sure if i'm not working i'm not getting paid and you know it, it the wcw is very bittersweet because that's after doing five years of hardcore matches in ecw and now WCW wants to wants to literally absorb the hardcore title yeah. because that's what that was his thing. Mm. Now you got to do it, you know, every Thursday night as opposed to picking and choosing when you wanted to do it. Right. So, 
it really you really saw the deterioration of just his physical body like being able to move like you would never know and i could watch matches and i could see the pain that he's going through towards the end but like anybody outside of the business you wouldn't you wouldn't know that he couldn't get out of the chair no he couldn't get out of bed for three hours in the morning just because he had to do five shows in a row yeah you know. he, was, he was still doing the same kind of stuff that he'd done for years he's just kind of saving it all up for that all gas no brakes man like you yeah. couldn't you couldn't slow it because in the same way going back to what we talked about before where andre kind of felt threatened by a new talent like there's these new guys that are coming in that mm. you know i don't know anything to you i'm an independent contractor and and if if you're slipping i'm gonna i'm gonna put you on blast in front of everybody and there's nothing you could do behind the scenes to gain that back so you better go out there and put your best show on and that and you know that's what you have to do and some of these guys are able to walk away early enough to you know to to live lives after and others they, they're never able to recover in my yeah. father's case so that probably answers the next question i had sort of he was there i think or there or thereabouts in wcw when wcw folded and WWE came in. I mean, was there any discussion about him going back to WWE or would he even wanted to at that point? The only thing that I know is that when, because it wasn't the WWE that bought the WCW when it really folded, it was AOL Time Warner that bought the WCW. And at that that time, AOL, everybody had AIM, you know, that was the thing. You still mm-hmm. had to buy dial-up internet and all that crap. So AOL bought it. And what they had done, they said that they would give people a cash, like a, a 75 cents to the dollar buyout on the remainder of their contract, okay. or you can effectively ride your contract out and make the full maturity of it. But after that, you're figure yeah. it out on your own. So, you know, that's, that's 2000 that it gets sold and it doesn't fully absolve or my father's contract doesn't fully absolve till 2001. So right. he, so he, he took kind of like an early retirement for a year and a half to where, uh, to where he was making almost 300 to $500,000 a year, that one year, just to finish his contract out. Right. Nice. If he, if he had wanted to go to the WWF, he could have taken, so for instance, say he had a hundred thousand dollar contract, they would have gave him $75,000 and he could have went and signed with, anybody the following day he chose because he, he he knew his back and all that's all the injuries were catching up to him chose to ride his his contract out because he had about a year and a half on it and kind of get healthy in that time being mm. but in that time you know spinal stenosis had gotten worse back surgeries were not what they are today no. by no means you know this is 2000 2001 so they were talking about completely fusing his whole back. If this happened in 2015, mm. he'd have a one inch incision in his lower back and he'd probably be on the golf course right now. Yeah. But, you know, you make an eight inch cut in his back and it's just little by little. He didn't want to fuse his entire spine because he didn't want to be in a mobility scooter. No. So they do little surgeries here to try to get him some pressure to alleviate the swelling of the stenosis. And in that year and a half, 
it just maturated that my body's done like right. you know and he did a couple shows here and there did a couple of local shows but it just like he had this one back surgery and it just couldn't couldn't recover from it yeah. you know he was able to walk but it was it was near debilitating yeah he would have been paralyzed had he continued right. without a doubt wow so 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 I, I don't want to dwell on you know the the end of his life too much and that but sort of what was what was he, what were the things he was enjoying sort of at the end when he stepped away from the ring and you know t- towards the end a lot of fishing a lot of weed and no things no responsibility you know like uh, sounds good <laughs> it like everybody and recently everybody's been trying to trying to like hit me up for some dark side of the ring type of tale to be like you know to to like sell my family down the river to make it sound like i had this horrible horrible end listen my parents got divorced my father moved to pennsylvania then he moved to florida he he did what he wanted when he wanted you know uh taking having taken oxycontins to to just get up in the morning deteriorated his heart mm-hmm. now if you want to if you want to label that as he was a rampant dark side of the ring freaking abusive then by all means but that's what everybody wants to buy nowadays yeah. and, and i don't have that yeah i know i know for a fact he he walked around with a gun on his hip a cigar in his mouth it was probably it was probably a blunt and he did what he wanted when he wanted and and rightfully so so he he enjoyed the i i for the short amount of time he definitely enjoyed the retirement you know he took the character with him and everybody remembered him everywhere he went he was we like even when i when i was a kid i remember going to the mall and there being a mass of people and me being just kind of tailing behind and being behind a crowd of people and just, and accepting that. And it, and, and it really is a humbling thing to take a perspective and like see somebody else achieve, you know, like see somebody else in their prime like that. And, you know, that he, he had that up until the absolute last day of his life. I know. That's that. brilliant. That's good. That's good. And um, so knowing the sort of legacy he's left behind, um, did you ever get inspired to get in the ring yourself at all? Or did you, you sort of meddle with it at all? No, my father, and now, now that I'm older and I'm understanding like the thing, you know, how your, your dad leaves for work and he says, you know, remember what I said and listen to your mother. Like it, and it, 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 it's true because, you know, the things that he said, you want to do something hard, go to college and, I, I went to college, my brother went to college, my sister went to college, and, and the whole time while I was in college, my mother told people that I, I got a, a degree in tapping kegs, and the whole time I was in college, I was like, when is this supposed to get hard, dad? When is this supposed to get hard? But I understand now that having accomplished that, that nobody can take an education from me, and nobody can, can do that, and at the end of the day, I will always have devices to accomplish something that my father didn't have an education. And that's what he wanted. He got expelled when he was a senior in high school for throwing a filing cabinet at his teacher. <laughs> True story. Um, 
So like, and then he spent the rest of his life, you know, traveling to these universities. He, his favorite university was Texas A&M. He, he loved going there, you know, and, and wrestling in their arena, but he would travel to these giant universities and he got a taste to see like all these college campuses because they would drive everywhere. And he's like, he's like, you want to do something hard, you go to college. And then after that, you want to get in that ring, we'll straighten your ass right out. Like he would have most certainly supported any one of us had we wanted to go that route. But he passed away when I was 18. I was a freshman in college. So I didn't have that maturation to where I could have, you know, gotten out and been like, hey, dad, can you break me in? Now, when I got out of college, I have, I worked at a, a bar around here. I was one of the bouncers there for a number of years. One of the head of securities there was Bubba Ray Dudley. When okay. He was young. This, so this is how crazy, like, when I tell you I live a movie lifestyle, life, it was, it was, Bubba Ray Dudley was the head bouncer at the bar that I was the head bouncer at 15 years after. So when I graduated college and and I was working in the bar the summer after my father passed away and those guys got me through it, that like, those are the people that really helped me be a man after that. And he was one of the characters that was there. And he even said like at the time he, he was like, so you want to break in, you want to break in. And I was, I was young. I didn't understand what I was going through at the time, but I knew that I had to finish college. Hmm. so I kept giving him the college thing kept giving him the college thing and respectfully he was like you want it it's here you know and and I love him to death for it because I had it Hmm. you know it was accessible it was there the offer was there but I needed to go through college I needed to finish that because I needed to see I needed to forge my own path I needed to to find my own identity. Had I said yes, you know, in 2007, 2008, that's when Bubba Ray was at the height of his WWE Mm. career. Like there's no doubt in my mind that this day sitting here, we'd be having a very different conversation. You know, we'd be talking about a career, my career being parallel to my father's, but I don't know if the man I am would be the same, you know, like, I was a dumb kid and it would have been, it would have been very brash. It would have been very stupid. I would have been very in your face. You know, like I had to, I had to go through the shit to kind of grow up man. And I'm comfortable knowing that I had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of guys are sitting around like, oh man, I could have been in WWF. I could have done this. Nah, it was there. Like it, all I had to do was say yes, but. The commitment, uh, I wasn't mature enough at the time. Okay. And I'm good where I'm at. I'm good with teaching. I I wanted to be a coach, you know, like that was something I really got into because my father had us in the basement, you know, coaching us for amateur wrestling and and my brother for amateur wrestling. And, And then I would end up taking my brother to tournaments throughout up and down the East coast. We would go cause he was, a national caliber high school wrestler. And those lessons that he imparted into us, I was like, I'm good at this. So mine as well. I, I love football. I went to college, played football. My brother went to college and wrestled, you know, so 
being a teacher is cool. And I want summers off. <laughs> I want summers off. So like, I, I love, I love, I champion all you guys. Like I, I wish you nothing but the best man, but I, it's, it wasn't for me. I, 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 I rest my head at the end of the day and I'm okay with that, that cool. it wasn't for me. Cool. Cool. So just finishing on, on a little bit of a, like a philosophical question, I suppose might be getting a bit deep, but um, sort of thinking of obviously the memories and the life, you know, your dad had from his life, you know, what sort of lessons would you take from that, that you pass on to, you know, the youngsters you're working with? Most of the stuff he told me, I can't say in school, <laughs> you know, like you, you want to wax philosophical, like it, I can't be like, listen, kid, don't half-ass this shit. Like, you know, but it, it really, at the end of the day, it came down to just core values of having integrity and, 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 you know, doing something that you're proud of and putting the work into it and, and not half-assing it. Like that's, I, I can always, I, I hear it as clear as day. It's like you, you half-assed the, the taking the garbage out and now you got to go do it again. Like, you know, so yeah, it just put your whole ass into things and you'll be all right. Okay. That's brilliant. <laughs> Listen, Shane, this is, this has been amazing, mate. I, um, I had so many memories of your dad growing up and, you know, I know nobody could, you know, nobody's memories could compare to the ones that you, you guys had growing up with him, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing yeah, as much as you have, you know, this is this has truly been an honor, mate. Having you I on. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Anytime I'm always down, talk some wrestling. Hey, we can do that. It. We can do that. Anyway, Shane Bigelow, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Good night. Thank you for listening to a Nerd to Know Media production.